Well, uh, several years ago, I preached a message titled, The Appeal of Unbelief. And in that message, we identified four things that we can take from Romans 1, 18 through 22 about unbelief. We're not going to read that text today. You might want to read it uh, sometime this week. But, but here are the things we found in Romans about unbelief. The Apostle Paul teaches us that there is no excuse for unbelief. So all of the reasons that we can come up with to justify why we don't believe in God, Paul says we're, we're without excuse. That there's really no good reason not to believe. He, he uh, taught us that unbelief requires the willful suppression of truth that God has made abundantly plain to all people. He further goes on and says something that pretty unpopular in our day, and sure it was unpopular in his day as well, and that is that he links unbelief to wickedness. And then he said something, teaches something that's very politically incorrect. He says that unbelief is foolish. And in fact, the Bible says this a few different places in Scripture, that, that unbelief is foolish. And it seems to me that one of the appeals of unbelief, of, of atheism, is its claim that there is no one to whom we are ultimately accountable. You know, if you read the writings of many well-known atheists throughout history, it, it becomes pretty clear that this thought of there being no one in a cosmic sense that we are ultimately answerable to is an idea that, that is found to be very appealing to people. Let me just give you a few examples. Uh, Karen Armstrong, in uh, her book, A History of God, writes this, It is wonderful not to have to cower before a vengeful deity who threatens us with eternal damnation if we do not abide by his rules. Julian Huxley said this, The sense of spiritual relief which comes from rejecting the idea of God as a supernatural being is enormous. And his brother, Aldous Huxley, also a noted uh, atheist, said this, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Consequently, I assumed it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we, we desired was liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. And Bertrand Russell, in Why I'm Not a Christian, wrote, The worst feature of the Christian religion is its attitude toward sex. And Christopher Hitchens wrote, The divorce between the sexual life and fear can now at last be attempted on the sole condition." that we banish all religions from the discourse. Paul links unbelief with wickedness. So in fact, though many who don't believe will tell you that their decisions are based on cold, hard reasoning, the testimony of noted atheists, and, and this is borne out in my own limited experience uh, with talking with people who do not believe in God, is that the appeal of there being no one to whom we answer it is so compelling to them. 
that, that it really becomes the, the motive, the reason for their choice to reject belief. They so desire that there not be a God that they basically try to will it to be so. I believe that this is largely the Bible's attitude toward unbelief. But before we become too antagonistic about those secular folks who don't believe in God, before we judge them too harshly, we have to ask ourselves how many Christians proclaim belief in God, say the right things, uh, mentally believe the right thing, but in the practice of their lives live as if there is no God rendering themselves practical atheists. So we're in the same boat, Christian and non-Christian, one rejecting God entirely, the other mentally affirming God while rejecting God in practice. Here are the facts that the atheist and the practical atheist, the Christian atheist, cannot change. The, the fact that every one of us in this room today have to face, there is a God and all of us are accountable to him. All of us will answer to him. Every single one of us. Because God is real, and because we will answer to Him, the primary concern of all of our lives should be rightly relating to God, making sure that we are right with God. It's more important than anything else in all of our lives. It's more important than what we're going to have for lunch today. It's more important than what we're going to do for vacation next summer. It's more important than where you'll go to college if you're a high school student in the room today. It's more important than what you're going to do for a career. It's more important than how Ohio State will do this year. It is more important than how Ohio State will do this year. And, of course, we know how the Browns will do. Um, so, Be, being, uh, being more serious, it is more important than the type of home we live in. There are more important matters than how nice or how lacking your home may be. More important than the amount of savings that we accumulate. It is even more important than the length of our lives. It is the most important thing. From the moment we are born until the moment that we die, the most important question in all of life is, am I right with God? And as we continue in Luke today and we come to Luke 18, 9 through 14, we find a parable that Jesus shares of two different men and how they went about approaching God. Specifically, the prayers that they prayed in approaching God. How they went about trying to uh, be right 
with God. And the parable ends with Jesus saying that of the two men, one of them went home justified before God, while the other did not. Now, to be justified before God is to be placed by God in a right relationship with himself. It involves God acquitting us of all of our sins. It involves God counting us as righteous, placing his righteousness on us, and thereby enabling us to be right with him. And of these two men, these two prayers that we're going to read about, one a Pharisee, one a tax collector, representing different approaches to trying to receive God's favor, different approaches to relating rightly with God, different approaches to trying to be right with God. These two men praying, two different prayers, only one of them is justified. Only one is made right with God. So I want to look at the text, and then we're going to look at the characteristics of the person that God does not justify And then we'll conclude by looking at the characteristics of the person that God does justify. So why don't you follow along as I read. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner." I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Quickly keep in mind that the Pharisee is the respected religious leader, and the tax collector was considered by by most Jewish people to be a cheat, uh, to be a traitor, and with good reason. And of the two men, of the two two candidates for receiving God's favor, it is the respectable Pharisee that Jesus says, the religious leader that Jesus says does not go home justified before God. Why not? Very simply, it is because he was filled with pride. And so before we consider the person God justifies, we learn from the parable that the person God does not justify is the person that is filled with pride. So so consider the characteristics of the Pharisee in the parable that make this clear. The text tells us that Jesus told this parable to, quote, some who were confident of their own righteousness. Now, it doesn't tell us that that it was entirely a group of Pharisees that Jesus was talking to. Certainly others could have been filled with pride, but it's certainly reasonable to expect, uh, suspect that at least uh, Jesus was speaking to a group that had Pharisees among them. The, the person God does not justify is the person who thinks they're fine with God 
on their own apart from the mercy and grace of God. Notice that the Pharisee loudly proclaims his merits to God. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Verse 11 tells us something very interesting about the Pharisee, and that is that he prayed about himself. One commentator I looked at this week said he effectively was praying to himself, but but he prayed about himself. He starts off his prayer, God, I thank you. So, So this is looking like it's a prayer of praise to God for God's goodness. That's, that's typically what would happen in a prayer that starts this way. God, I thank you, and then, and then God would be thanked for something God had done. But what the Pharisee does is basically thanks God for himself. He, he quickly turns the attention from God to himself. He basically was giving a testimonial about himself and calling it prayer. He, he was confident of his own righteousness, and Jesus says he is the one who was not justified. Now, if you've been paying attention in recent weeks, you know that this theme has come up many, many times in the book of Luke uh, in recent weeks. And I submit to you that uh, I believe it comes up many times because it was something people then needed to hear frequently, needed to be reminded of, and something that, that we need to hear, that we need to be reminded of because we struggle with this a lot. Christians and non-Christians alike struggle greatly with this, and that is the belief that we are okay with God on our own merit. Even those of us who say we don't believe that often act as though secretly, deep down, somewhere inside, we believe we are somehow earning our way with God. Every person who ever rationalizes with, I'm a pretty good person, so I'm okay with God. If you have ever used an argument like that, you are in that group that Jesus is referring to as some who were confident of their own righteousness. And Jesus says that when we're confident of our own righteousness, right standing with God eludes us. Next, the person in the parable, not justified by God, looks down on others and compares himself to others rather than to God. Verse 11, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, you can just hear disdain in these words for all of those other people, for all of the wrong kind of people. He he compares himself to others, and notice who he compares himself to. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. Who is our example? Who is the standard that we are to compare ourselves to? It's Christ. It's God himself. That's the standard that we are judged by. But but we boost our self-esteem by ignoring that proper comparison and instead comparing ourselves to others who fall short. And in our minds, we are always comparing ourselves to people who fall, fall shorter than what we perceive that we're falling. That is just how it works. You know that we do this. I do this. 
You do this. And if you think you don't do this, just go back in the archives of your mind and and research and find out if you've ever said this. Well, I make mistakes from time to time, but I would never do that. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if I did and you didn't raise your hand, you are a big fat liar. (laughs) Because we all have rationalized like that at some point. We're looking down on others. We compare ourselves to others rather than to God. We're so warped that we will often find somebody who's done the exact same thing we did. And yet we find some little insignificant variation and say, well, yes, of course, I did what they did, but I didn't do that. I mean, it's just, it's just in us to try to find a way to one-up other people and somehow think this, this works with God. We, we secretly believe that God is pleased because even though we have sinned every day of the past year in thought, word, and deed, we have not done that. And so God is just like giddy with enthusiasm over us. We comfort ourselves that we must be okay with God because we stack up pretty well in the company of losers. Using the term very affectionately, losers. <laughs> we, we imagine that being right with God, and I'm, I hope I get this right, I hope I don't have a, a George Bush moment here, but uh, you know that, that thing that when a bear's after you, you don't have to be faster than the bear. You just have to be faster than the person you're with. And, and we imagine that <laughs> we imagine that being right, did I say that right? Okay. We imagine that being right with God is like that. I, I don't have to be the holiest. I just have to be holier than the person I'm beside. And then the judgment of God will will get them. And I will be free. That's what we think happens. Uh, William Barclay tells of a statement that was recorded as uh, having been made by um, a well-known rabbi uh, who, who uh, who said this. This is a great line. If there are only two righteous men in the world, I and my son are these two. If there is only one, I am he. I just have to be faster than my son, and and I'll I'll be okay. I'll leave him to the judgment of God. I'm good. That's the attitude that that this guy had, looking down on others, comparing ourselves to others instead of God. These are the characteristics of the person that God does not justify. They are filled with pride. Next, the person that God doesn't justify closely manages a public reputation for piety. And man, this one, this one hits us. We, we do this too. Uh, it was customary for devout Jews to fast once a week. But those who wanted to be known as especially devout would make a public display of fasting more than once a week. Sometimes twice, like it says this one did. Sometimes three times. And here is something the, the text doesn't let us uh, in on, but the, that we know, is that what they would often do is they would pick the days of the week where the temple was the busiest. 
in order to fast. What better way to bolster your reputation than than to be fasting and, and making it known you're fasting when the most people are around? Next, the person God does not justify is the person who doesn't recognize the need for God's grace. The Pharisee's prayer is all about the Pharisee. It's about how well he's done, how wonderful he is, how much better he is than others. There is not a hint of need in his prayer. There is not a hint of recognition that he stands in a bad condition before an absolutely holy God. The Pharisee is proud. He thinks he's fine with God in and of himself. And he goes home unjustified. Jesus says so. Jesus says so. The person God does not justify is the person who is filled with pride. Jesus says this about the Pharisee, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. With this statement, Jesus moves from sharing the parable to explaining the parable, and he says very clearly that the proud are going to be humbled. He's very clear that of the two men, only one was justified, and it wasn't the Pharisee. So what we find in the Pharisee is the wrong approach to take if we desire God's favor, if we desire to be in right standing with God. Now, for the next few minutes, I want us to find about the person that God does justify. What what characteristics do we see in that person? And overriding everything else that I'm going to say from this point on, we see from this parable that the person that God justifies is humble. The person is humble. Notice that the tax collector doesn't say anything about anybody else in his prayer. He doesn't criticize or compare himself to another human being. His prayer is truly about he and God. The person that God justifies compares himself to God's standard and gives up comparing themselves to others. No no matter how they might stack up to other people, other people aren't the standard. God is, and they recognize this. And no matter how good we are, we fall short of God's standard. People who are justified by God understand this. We, we have embraced Romans 3.23 that says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I was reminded in preparing this of King David and his great prayer of repentance in the 51st Psalm, where he, he says something very interesting. He says, God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And, and I always, no, no, David, you're not thinking through this correctly. You, you, uh, you sinned really significantly against Bathsheba, and David, you, you killed Uriah. So, so you sinned against more than just God, David. You, you sinned against people. I think what David is acknowledging in this prayer is simply, I I don't think he's really saying he didn't sin against those people. I, I think what he is saying is that all sin is ultimately 
against God himself. It is a violation of God's holiness. Comparing and contrasting ourselves to others is pointless because our sin problem is ultimately between God and us. And sometimes in talking to people that are wrestling with with sin and and wrong things they've done in their life, I, I find from time to time that people fail to think that what they did wrong was ultimately an affront to God. They get very concerned about how they've hurt another person that they're, they're very troubled by that. They want to try to find a, find a way to make that right. But sometimes you, you try to find a way to gently say, but, but more important than any of this is your relationship with God. You've, you've sinned against God. And sometimes people look at you like, well, I never, I never thought of that. And yet all sin is ultimately not against other people. It is against God himself. And so the person God justifies compares themselves to God's standards, realizes how how far they have fallen short, and and rather than judging themselves on the curve of the rest of mankind's fallenness, they deal just with them and God. Because of this, the person God justifies understands their own unworthiness. Consider the tax collector. He stood at a distance. The scripture, the parable Jesus tells, uh, he couldn't even bring himself to look up into heaven, which was a common posture of prayer. And then he beat his breast. He understands God's expectations. He understands his own condition. He realizes how far he is from meriting anything from God. He realizes how unworthy he is of God's favor, of God's blessing, of being right with God. Daryl Bach says of this, The values God honors are those whereby we look at ourselves in light of who he is. And when we do that, humility comes quite easily to us. At least it it should. The tax collector knew where he stood with God as he approached God. So it was hard for him. So at a distance, didn't look into heaven. God can work with people who understand their neediness. The danger of pride, the danger of the Pharisee, is that it blinds us to where we really stand with God. We think we're okay, when in reality, we're not. The tax collector, he saw clearly, he knew where he stood and he knew it wasn't a good place. And that's the good place to be, is knowing that, understanding that. Because the person God justifies understands that they are unworthy of God's favor. More evidence that the tax collector wasn't engaging in the comparison game is found in verse 13. He cries out, God have mercy on me, a sinner. If you followed along today in your NIV Bible, that is how it read. Some translations of the Bible, it reads a bit differently, just just very minorly, a little minor difference. And Leon Moore says that some of these other translations, he believes, get a little closer on this point. And they translate this prayer this way. God have mercy on me, the sinner. 
The Pharisee had put himself in a class all of his own, this, this, this class of nobody else being as righteous as, as I am. And the tax collector puts himself in a class all his own, but it's a much different approach. He is so unconcerned with comparing and contrasting himself to others, so unconcerned with arguments like, well, I make mistakes, but I'd never do that, that he doesn't even approach God as a sinner among sinners. He sees himself as the sinner. The, the, the top of the heap, the, 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 the big dog in sin. He sees himself as the sinner. And the person God justifies is the person that completely surrenders the hope of being justified by comparing themselves to someone they perceive as being worse. The person God justifies is the person that surrenders the comfort of saying, well, I know I'm a sinner, but I have a lot of company. Another thing that is commonly said in our culture. Well, I know I'm headed to hell, but I'm going to have a lot of friends there. Is there any more idiotic thing that's ever come out of human lips than that? I mean, seriously. The person God justifies does not take comfort in any of that. They don't take comfort in the fact that that sinners is a big group. They see themselves as the sinner. They understand the gravity of their situation. They understand that they stand before God alone. You know, the Bible is big on community, but we aren't judged, all of us, in a little grouping. We are judged, God and us. God and us. That's how we're judged. We, we, we don't get to pick. Here's what we imagine. We imagine the judgment of God as being like a big lineup of sinners that God is dealing with one right after the other. And so here's what we, we think that as long as the people in front of us in line and the people behind us in line are really, really bad, that we'll skate through. Or maybe we think it's like an American Idol lineup during Hollywood week, you know, where, where they have the singers all line up and then the really uh, good ones are told to step forward. And if you don't get a step forward, then you're, then you're left, you know, to go home. We imagine it's something like that. And so here are the kind of things we think. We think, now, if I can just get in the grouping where either beside me or in front of me is like Hitler and Stalin... And then if it's a single file line, then behind me is like uh, Manson and Gacy. This is the grouping that I want to come before God uh, with. Because then I'm going to be the bright spot in the group. And, and of the five of us, God is going to have to let me into heaven. This is, I thought that would be much funnier, but we, uh, uh, <laughs> but this is how we imagine that we approach God. Like, like our teacher who grades on a curve. And we really failed, but we get a pass because everybody else failed worse than us. That's how we think this works. And yet, it doesn't work like that. The person justified by God understands that, that when it comes to judgment, it's, it's just it's me and God. It's me and God. 
And they see themselves as the sinner, not as one of a company of sinners. The person God justifies is sorrowful over his sinful condition. And just a note to you ladies, I'm using his both because the people in the parable are men and because it's just easier than always saying his and her. I value you ladies. So whenever I say his here, his and her. Are we okay? All right, good, good. All right. Did I need to say all that? No, thank you. All right. Sorry that I did. The person God justifies is sorrowful over his sinful condition. You see this again in the posture of the tax collector. He's standing at a distance. He's not looking up into heaven. He's ashamed. He's beating his breast. The tense of that is a continuous action. He he is just beating himself over and over and over, which was a sign of sorrow. And his prayer is a simple one. It is a cry, have mercy. And it basically means let your anger be removed from me. The, The whole picture that Jesus paints of this tax collector's prayer makes it clear that the man is extremely sorrowful for what he's done. And this is the type of person that God justifies. If you have never experienced sorrow over your sin... You need to ask yourself, why not? Now, sorrow is just the beginning point of turning and and moving away from sin. It's not in and of itself enough, but you need to experience sorrow for sin. And if you haven't, you've got to ask yourself some hard questions. Hopefully, when you've hurt other people, you've felt sorrow over that fact. If not, you are likely what? A sociopath. (laughs) If you can hurt people and not feel bad about it, you're a sociopath. So hopefully we don't have any here today. And so if you have hurt someone else, I guess I shouldn't say hopefully. Jesus can change sociopaths too. So, Uh, but, but. I don't think Jesus would be pleased with what I just said. We, we welcome sociopaths. So uh, we, we want healing for sociopaths. But uh, anyway. Just give me a, just give me a minute, minute to recover. Uh, but hopefully, when you hurt people, you feel sorrow. And it shouldn't be any different when it comes to God. When we throw off His rule, when we offend His holiness, when we reject His loving care of our lives, once we come to our senses, once we see the error of our ways, there should be some godly sorrow that accompanies the realization of what we've done. Now, now, once you have experienced godly sorrow, once you have turned from the sin to God, once you have received His forgiveness, you're not condemned. So, so we're not talking about putting condemnation on people. Condemnation comes from the enemy of our souls. It is not from God. But I marvel at the number of people who seem to think that ever feeling bad about anything is condemnation and must not be tolerated. Sometimes we do things 
And we ought to feel bad that we have done them. Sorrow over sin is not condemnation. It is a part of conviction. And when you sin, sorrow is an appropriate response. And let me just say, if you do not experience sorrow at sin, something is off. Something is off. You, you, you need to seriously do some work between you and God if you can sin and never experience sorrow. Because sorrow, the parable teaches us, is the response of the person that God justifies. Bruce Larson writes this, The tax collector had nothing but one essential quality, which is a sense of his own unworthiness and his need for God's grace. The the Pharisee, his was a prayer of proclaiming his virtue to God. He went home unjustified. But the tax collector, he recognized his need for God's grace. He recognized his need for God's mercy. He knew that he stood empty-handed before God. Seeing ourselves correctly, recognizing that we have nothing with which to merit God's favor, recognizing that we have nothing to offer God, recognizing that we are empty-handed. The person who recognizes these things This is the person God justifies. This is the person that God makes right. The person God justifies is humble. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the empty-handed, humble man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be humbled will be exalted. So what about you? Where are you in this story? There's no reason to to fool yourself here. Just be honest. We're not asking for a show of hands, but just be honest with yourself. Where are you in the story? Have you been clinging to your own goodness as your means of receiving God's favor, of being right with God? If that has been your approach to God, friend, this parable teaches us that like the Pharisee, you're going home unjustified. Or are you like the tax collector who sees rightly who knows that you have nothing to offer God, and so you humbly throw yourself on God's mercy, and if that's what you're like, you go home justified. The proud will be humbled. The humble will be exalted. Both James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5 contain a paraphrase of Proverbs three thirty four and say this, God opposes the proud. That verse ought to get our attention. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Some translations say that God resists the proud. 
You can double check me on this, but I think you'll find that the proud are the only group in Scripture that, uh, the only group that Scripture says God opposes or resists is the proud. The, The Pharisee went home unjustified. He made his case, but God rejected his argument. God opposed and resisted the Pharisee's attempt at being justified before God. And all of our attempts with our I'm a good person arguments are resisted by God. All of our approaching God with, well, I know I make mistakes, but I'd never do that. When we come to him and we offer that as our merit, as as how we should receive his favor... Scripture tells us that he opposes us. He resists us. I I just imagine God digging in his heels and and like setting himself against us when we come at him with that. But he gives grace to the humble. He he gives his unmerited favor to the humble. to those who don't compare themselves to others, to those who understand their own unworthiness, to to those who see themselves as the sinner, to those who are sorrowful over sin, to those who recognize their need of His mercy and grace, to those who know they are empty-handed before God, the humble, to those He gives grace. And if you want to be in a right relationship with God, if you want to be right with God, this is the way that you must approach Him. You must approach Him humbly. You know, oftentimes when we talk like this, we we immediately allow our minds to go to people who have not yet received Christ as their Savior. And we, we think about how much they must humble themselves before God to receive His grace. But friends, this message is for, for all of us as Christians. John Wimber, the founder of the vineyard, was fond of saying, the way in is the way on. The way into God's kingdom is the way on in God's kingdom. The way in is humbly acknowledging we have nothing to offer God. And we never move past that. We never move past the need for God's grace. It's not like we get in on grace and then stay in based on our merit. We get in on grace and then we stay in by being good boys and girls. It doesn't work that way. We come into the kingdom by God's grace. We stay in the kingdom by God's grace. We are sanctified through the kingdom by God's grace. And someday we will see Jesus only by God's grace. It is all grace from beginning to end. Why don't you stand?